crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. I'm Matt Georges, and in this episode, I'm talking to Anuj Desai, a former media lawyer who took the not-so-obvious step into the legal cannabis industry. Why? And more importantly, how did his mum and dad feel about that? Those are just some of the questions I put to Anuj as we talk about what led him to leave behind the safety of a well-paid job in law and jump headfirst into a new period of entrepreneurship starting a fitness business, freelancing as a legal consultant, and launching a podcast on the cannabis industry. We discuss the importance of being flexible and adapting well to change, imposter syndrome, and, of course, Anuj's answer to my eternal question, what is success? And all that with only one mention of Bob Marley. Not much housekeeping this month. Anuj and I keep things light, although there are a couple of swear gremlins hiding in the verbal undergrowth, so watch out for little ears nearby. All right, that's enough of that. Come on, let's have a taste of serendipity soup. My name is Anuj Desai. I, what am I? I host a podcast <laughs> called The Cannabis Conversation, but you and I know each other from university days many moons Ooh. ago in Bristol. And I have been a lawyer for most of my career, mainly in the entertainment sector, so film and television. Did a variety of roles. Started off in the law firm, but then quickly moved in-house and and worked for a few different organisations. But four or five years ago, early midlife crisis, decided I didn't necessarily want to do that for the rest of my life or become a sort of senior lawyer in a big media company. So I kind of quit my job with nothing to go to. and, And I was mainly kind of driven by an entrepreneurial sort of dream. And I'm starting to kind of realise that four and a half years later, through setting up a consultancy practice for the legal cannabis industry. Wow. I don't know if it was completely mapped out, maybe you can say, but you'd gone from this fairly standard law career, and then suddenly, I mean, you left with nothing to go to. That's really brave. I guess where to start with it is what prompted that sudden change of heart? Where did that come from? Well, I think that's the, that's the false assumption. It wasn't sudden. And, it, it, uh, you know, and that's the thing, right? As you think about these things for a long time, and I uh, had been thinking about it for a long time. I, I was at a company that I really loved, and I was seeing career progression in that and working with some great people. And then they got bought by a big company, and they weren't very good. And my youngest was a baby at the time, and they offered me redundancy when they bought the company. But as he was, he was just born. So this is not a good time to sort of have a spot on the sidelines. So I'll stick it out for a bit and see how I go. But I worry he wasn't enjoying the job. I didn't like the company. I didn't like the people I was working for. And I was sort of looking for other jobs that I didn't really want just to get out. And I was going for those jobs and I wasn't getting them because clearly 
they could tell that I wasn't motivated mm. to get that job. And then there was sort of a vicious cycle, really, of then getting more depressed about it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I had a situation where the company was also all about uh, downsizing. So they asked me to make two of my team redundant. I went home and said to my wife, you know what? The, the package is pretty good. Why don't I put myself forward? Because I'm, you know, I probably cost more than both of those people put together and sort of take me off your books and, and sort of not in a kind of necessarily valiant way. <laughs> oh, I was going to say you fell on your sword there. Right? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm making it sound much better than it is in that respect. No, I was going to be compensated for it, but I thought this was like a good opportunity to do that. So I went mm. in and I spoke to my boss and I said, if you're offering this, why don't you take me instead? And he said, well, I still want to get rid of them, but if you're also interested in leaving, then we can come to a, come to an agreement. So I didn't leave with nothing to go to. I had a little bit of a bit of a payout to sort of give me a few months runway. I hadn't really mapped out anything else other than that I'd been working on an idea, business idea with a friend for the previous six months on a very low level, but it was a health and fitness business for older people. And it just felt like, why not give it a go? And I'm quite lucky as a lawyer, it's quite a useful trade to fall back on. So I could sort of consult on the side of that. It was a set of circumstances that made it easy. But I guess it was still quite a big decision to to do that. But it wasn't just sort of overnight. It wasn't sudden. How did the fitness industry initiative go? It was great. I really enjoyed it. It was messy. We were doing it on a minimal budget. I really enjoyed it. I did it with a friend. And it's fair to say that not all friends are designed to be business partners. And and we realised that actually after six months, we basically had a conversation to say, look, let's save our friendship instead of this business. Right. It was a great experience. And it sort of just told me that I didn't really want to go back to big corporate life because I just didn't, on the podcast, I talk a bit about it. I, the thing I'd seen in these big companies is that it just gets very political at the top. I mean, all companies are political, but in very large organisations, it's you become a sea level or, or just below that and you're you don't really do actually that much work you're just dealing in between departments and, and everyone's trying to get applause and credibility for their own department and this causes clashes between teams and things and i've seen it in two or three different places and i just think it's a function of big organizations with lots of human beings in them and none of that really appealed to me really and so i thought let's see if i can do it myself i still haven't nailed that and you know one of the things that i would say about this is I think we always want to go from one thing to another safe bet, but it doesn't really work like that. And your next move, the best move for you could be five moves away from where you are, but you're never going to know that unless you make that first move. So similarly, I've had to pivot three or four times since leaving full-time work, both to react to necessity, but also to react to things that I learned that I like more than others. There was a study into what people did when they were made redundant, say at big car plants or coal mines and so on there's a section of society that believes that people who were made redundant you know when industrialization kind of came to an end in the uk that they've just been sitting on their asses for the last 20 years or something but in fact you interview people they've gone from those sorts of jobs to something very very different you know and i'm talking like a guy who used to be a miner who's now like children's entertainer a clown literally and you're just like how did that go and he's just like i love it yeah i, I really enjoy it it might sound kind of a bit flippant and like not taking it seriously, but what this study was showing was that once people were given the push to try something new, not everybody enjoyed it, 
and certainly not everybody found the thing that they wanted to do, but a lot more people did than maybe thought they would. They found themselves in very, very different occupations that they wouldn't have gone to unless they'd been pushed. And I guess it's the bravery that comes with pushing yourself because you didn't have to leave. You could have just sucked it up and you know, made those two people redundant and tried a bit more politicking and a get out on the golf course or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> but you didn't, you, you, there was a bit more to it than that. So what's been the jumps then from that you've been on from that first attempt to kind of try something different? Where else have you ended up? Before I answer that question, I should just, I'm just making me remember the thought process that went through and I would credit a, one book that I read that kind of started to open my mind up about this. And it's called The Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck, who I think is an educational psychologist. Mm. And now actually, I believe this book is is used by teachers in the UK education system in terms of teaching kids. And it was it was really illuminating because I had previously categorized myself as I'm a lawyer, I don't have any imagination, and therefore I couldn't start or create an idea myself. I could probably help you do it. If you had an idea, I could help you run a business. So I was kind of looking at myself as maybe a future COO or something like that, but I'd put myself in that box. And then I was reading this book about the growth mindset, and it was really sort of saying that you need know, just challenge yourself to do things that you're not good at and but but having a constant appreciation of learning and the idea that you can kind of improve at most things by applying yourself maybe just realize that well look i'm not currently very imaginative but maybe if i indulged it a bit more then i could cultivate those sort of new and different skills and it really kind of brought down the barriers the sort of self-limiting barriers i had in my head about what i could and i couldn't do so that book was very actually very kind of pivotal in inspiring me to think that i could do something I would never put you down as somebody who lacked imagination. I'm interested in how you got that view of yourself. Well, I mean, I guess it goes back to the idea of creativity and failure and these sort of things. I wasn't very musical. I enjoyed art, but that was sort of snuffed out by my parents as being a kind of waste of time in my youth. And, and, and I bring that up because that's had a very deep impact on me in terms of, you know, my parents are very typically Asian. So you focus on science and things that you can get right and wrong. And you minimize the risk of failure by just studying harder. In science, there is, it's possible to get the correct answer rather than it being a subjective artistic thing. And so I could just through the process of that, convince myself that I wasn't I lacked imagination. And so it's interesting to hear you think that it didn't appear that way outwardly. It's self-limiting things that you tell, tell yourself. You rarely look at yourself objectively and you have these ideas that more often than not people don't share. But I had, for whatever reason, thought that that was the way that I approached things. Well, now I look at it very differently. When I think about things like creativity, I, creativity, lots of people think, oh, you're, you're they, they attach value to it. So you're good at something because you're creative. And, and actually where I see creativity is more, you're not afraid to sort of try things, basically. You're, you're unencumbered with putting things out there. And that gives you the latitude to create more because, you know, you're not scared about what someone will think. And that's being creative. And if you make 999 really bad paintings, but then you make one that's amazing and is hugely successful, then that has value and that shows that you're able to do something, but you haven't been afraid. You haven't been put off by the 999 times it hasn't worked. And it's that sort of ability to be, to persist with things, I think. And, you know, I, I'd been very much like if I, if I try something and I get it wrong, then I'm not good at it. 
And the reality is very few people are good at things the first time they try it, you know, or even the first five times they try it. It's sort of getting back up and carrying on and taking the pressure off yourself to perform, I think is really, is, is a real key driver for me now. I remember as a, as a kid, my dad would be very annoyed with what he called my five minute wonders. So I'd get ideas. I, you know, I started making a perpetual motion machine using bottles and glue and stuff. I had ideas for a flying helicopter with a camera on it, which, you know, 20, 30 years later could have been a winner if only I hadn't been 10 years old at the time. <laughs> the reason I'm saying this is because the response to that was I had inspiration, but not perspiration. Didn't persevere with it. And that, I was young and that's the way it goes. But instead of saying, that's a really good thing, build on it. It was more like, no, don't do that. Whereas in fact, what Ypres should have been saying was, you've got to stick with it. Stick with one idea, really push it, and we'll support you with it. What you were saying, this idea of pushing things that you're not so good at, the reason people are inside their comfort zone is because they're good at it. So if you push them outside, they will tend to make more mistakes and they're not going to like it. I feel it's quite challenging to push yourself outside that comfort zone. It's easy to say it, but what it feels like when you fail is unpleasant, isn't it? And that's why we shrink away from failure is because it doesn't feel nice. So what, what did it feel like for you when you tried things and they didn't work out? You put a really positive spin on it, but it doesn't feel nice at all. It, it's something to be avoided, my sense is anyway. I mean, failure is now much more of a popular concept, isn't it? The idea that once you embrace it means it doesn't hurt is is also nonsense. It does hurt and it's a blow to the ego and the pride and everything mm. else. But that shouldn't put you off from doing it. What what I find now on just a general level with lots of things is is kind of leaning into that emotion actually and sort of really kind of sitting with it and allowing yourself to feel these things. I think suppressing emotions is something that our society sort of does a lot and hopefully it's starting to kind of modify that in in some ways but being sad and upset are sometimes the most appropriate response to a certain set of circumstances right so pretending that you aren't is is not useful because it just stores up things for another day the idea of kind of traumas that haven't been dealt with affecting you later in life is now is also quite popular in psychology at the moment as a reason for most people's longer term issues i'm kind of digressing but here i think with the idea of failure is if you kind of accept it and you sort of sit with it and you're like, okay, this hurts and, and you sort of really kind of look at it, you can take so much out of it and you're not diminishing it. But I think once, once you're able to sit with it and kind of look at it really kind of square in the face, that pain doesn't last as, as long as it would if you pretended it didn't happen or you put on a brave face or do all these other things. And actually when you look at it, you, you can figure out that actually there's a bit of blow to the ego there because I think someone else might think less of me for this. But the reality that is that is very rare. Most people will say, good on you for having a go. And so, like I said, once you've looked at it and you realise that some of your concerns are not really that valid, it sort of makes the whole thing a lot easier to deal with. A real good case in point was when I launched this fitness business with, with my friend, and my friend is a personal trainer, so he's in the, the fitness space, but I was a media lawyer, so I had nothing to do with fitness at all. And when I was launching this business and kind of putting marketing out on Facebook and things like that, I was really worried that people would be like, what the hell do you know about this? And like, you know, that sounds random. And the absolute opposite happened. I got so many people saying, oh, well done. This is a great idea. Oh, good on you for starting something like such positive support. It was amazing. And so now that memory has stayed with me for lots of things that I'm afraid of. 
if I'm afraid of doing something, I always keep fresh that memory of actually once you do something, you're much more likely to get really big support than all of the nonsense criticism that you think you might get. It's helped me to now overcome other fears when I'm doing big events, presentations, that sort of thing. You mentioned on your podcast, imposter syndrome. But that's basically what you've just described there, the idea that you're going to try something, you're going to give it a go, but you're not, you're not steeped in it. And then you worry that people will criticise, and then it turns out they don't. That's very much the feeling. I mean, that's kind of the feeling I had setting up this podcast. I was like, what are people going to think about this? Why would anybody come on this? Did, did you have something similar with yours when you set it up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just you think you lack credibility. So, so why would someone talk to you type thing? And I mean, that's just with the podcast. But you know, equally as a lawyer, you speak to any lawyer, and they're like, "Oh, God, one day someone's going to find me out." <laughs> and, and and I think people have that in most professions. You know, you're when I was thinking about preparing to speak to you today. You know, there's one of the key things that I've been looking at over the last few years is this idea around assumptions that we make. We make assumptions about other people all the time what they're thinking but also what their lives are like and then crucially we make huge assumptions about ourselves as well and when it comes to assumptions about other people you know we and it's not helped by social media at all because it just sort of fuels this but we seem to think other people are leading these perfect lives without issues and the reality is that's utter nonsense i mean covid is something that's brought that home in stark kind of view there are just too many variables for people to be on top of everything. You you could have a great job, but, you know, you're having troubles with your wife or your child is sick or your mum or dad has just died or a thousand different things, you know, that could be happening to people. And I had a friend that asked me when I was, wasn't feeling so great a few years ago, he said, look at your friends, whose life would you want to swap with? And I actually... And you said me, right? <laughs> First I said Matt, and then I, uh, then I said, actually, let me think about it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and initially, obviously, I, I thought of my, my most wealthy friends first, as in... And then I kind of looked at their lives and I was like, well, you know, they, they work 70-hour weeks and got a flash car and everything, but they don't really ever see their kids. They're travelling two, three times a month and all this stuff. And I was like, money isn't that important to me that I'd want to do those sacrifices. So then I looked at other people, maybe someone who had a great a job that they loved, but didn't have enough money, the other side of the coin. And then I just sort of decided to realize, actually, there's lots of things that I have that I'm really grateful for. And I think we project these, th- these, these kind of ideas about what other people are going through and seemingly ignore the, the fact that they're human and they're going through similar things to you. When I talk about assumption about ourselves, one of the things that I've found was a key driver for me to leave the the job that I was in was I was mainly behind a computer screen, just emailing people and negotiating deals by email. And I was like, I'm a people person. I much prefer being in the company of others and meeting and and, and getting to know people and building relationships. And I wanted to do more of that. So that was a, a key driver. But I just assumed that everyone wanted to do that and everyone was good at that. And that was my assumption. And I basically assumed that the skills that I had were nothing special and they were very ordinary and I, I didn't have enough to make me stand out. And actually just getting out there and speaking to people, not everyone has those skills. And and I display mine in a different way to others who have similar skills, right? So it kind of made me realize actually, yeah, I should sort of focus on the things that I want to do and that I'm good at. And actually, they are valuable and unique in their way to what people are looking for. So we shouldn't use it as a I'm nothing special kind of 
internal dialogue. <laughs> People talk about, oh, you know, you, you need good soft skills. I don't know that they're very valuable. No, they are valuable. They're not valued. If you go to an interview and you can demonstrate, just as you've said there, the ability to just get on with people, to talk people around to your point of view, I don't think that would get you very far in an interview. Do you think I'm right or not? It depends on what role you're going for, right? You know, if you're mm. a front of house at a restaurant, then it's an, an incredible skill to have. There's a, and this takes a bit of self-confidence, but you kind of have to back yourself in a way that if I'm being true to myself and I'm showing who I am, then the right person will want to employ me. And if they don't recognize those skills, then they yeah. then they won't. You know, it's that's far too simplistic because people need jobs and they can't just rely on this as a kind of blueprint for life. There's, in everything in life, there's some compromise. If that's the skill that you want to use mostly in what you do, do then you'll go for jobs where that's valued i think is i guess more to the point so when you had that moment where you were looking at how different people were doing i mean this is kind of a question that i ask everybody which is it seems like you came up with a some definition of what success means there or, or am i reading too much into it well i don't think i've come up with that yet if i'm honest <laughs> <laughs> there have been periods in the time since i've left full-time work where Money has been insufficient. Income has has been insufficient because I've been too focused on finding the dream. And there is a balance of reality that needs to occur. But I am definitely shortlisting and refining what the things are that are on my list of the features of work that I want in my life. And the, the biggest one is just people. So I want to be I want to be in a role where I'm meeting people and building relationships. So that's that's kind of the the bedrock of it. And I'm I'm reasonably open on a lot of the other things actually. There's probably a level of money that I wouldn't want to go beneath. I'm not obsessed with having a yacht or any of these nonsense things that I think bling culture is focused on. And I'm gonna sound like my parents, but I do worry about the youth of today, thinking that being a YouTuber is the sort of the zenith. And being able to buy things is a kind of uh, goal in life. But I'm also not going to lie, I live in London and I want a certain level of comfort. So sort of being honest about that too. But like I said, I think the main thing is people, being much more around people. So one of the things you find with law, and I I mean, I'm still a lawyer, so I do this to, uh, it's still part of my week. But when you're negotiating a contract at the point of a deal where there's maximum distrust between the two parties. It's basically, how am I going to screw you over? How are you going to screw me over? And let's let's find a set of compromises and write it down as a contract. And where I really wanted to be was in the bit before the contract, where you sort of decide which partners you want to work with. And then the bit after the contract, when you start building the relationship together in like how you can make each other money, et cetera. Those bits were way more interesting, but I found I came in at this bit where it was just a bit adversarial. And I didn't want that to be like the whole of my working life i think there was more to it and i guess variety is another thing so i'm quite interested in a number of different areas not only do i want to just stick to one single role but do i want to stick to one single business i am evolving into more of an advisor to a few businesses actually and i quite like that because it gives me a sort of portfolio approach to to work where i get to hear about lots of different things it might be quite different in their makeup so I remember one of the things that you said in the, in that number 100 podcast was that you didn't really have an outcome in mind when you started the podcast up. It's very popular in that circle of, of industry and it's very well respected. And presumably it's led to other things. So 
I'm just interested in, it's kind of quite a Zen approach to that, to just start something and just kind of go with it and see whether it works. I think it goes back to the original point, doesn't it? Where people want certainty in the decisions they make. So they kind of want to jump from one thing to another safe bet. And I mean, that's entirely possible. If you get another job at a company similar to yours doing a similar role, then you're probably, that's as close as you can get to doing that, right? But you still don't know the people that work there. Your new boss might be a complete whatever. And so there's a risk there. Well, one of the things that, I, that I've learned over the last couple of years is that this idea of building something and doing a little bit every day that eventually does lead to something. And I'm now kind of starting to leverage that, but it, you know, I've been doing it for two years. And if you'd asked me at the time, would I do it if I realized it would take me two years to start leveraging it, I would have probably said no. And equally, when I left the, the full-time role, if you'd have told me it took, took me sort of four and a half, five years to find something that I'm really enjoying. Equally, I don't know whether I would have made that decision either. I think remaining flexible is a really important part of whatever you're doing because there's going to be so many things out of your control that change your perspective on life and your personal circumstances. And if you're very rigid in your approach, then those people find it the hardest, right? They really struggle. So for example, COVID is, is a perfect example. No one could predict, would have predicted what has happened and the way it's changed everything. And people that I know that have struggled the hardest with it are the possibly the more rigid people who are just not that open to change. Is that and the so, fixed mindsets that Carol it, 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 it's, Yeah, it is the fixed mindset, really. And if you've got a fixed mindset, then you don't expose yourself to areas that you're unfamiliar with and you keep yourself in areas that you are very comfortable in. And you can excel in those areas, don't get me wrong. You can be very high performing, but you're just not able to deal with change. And I think... Things are changing so rapidly now. We have just a much bigger world through the supercomputers in our pocket. We're just exposed to so many more people, so many more influences, so much change. I think an essential life skill now is to be adaptable and, and open to change and new things that happen. I wanted to focus on that, the kind of cross-fertilization of ideas. A number of people I've spoken to talk about not being stuck in one mode of thinking so they're always looking to their interests and their hobbies which you never know you might get a smart idea from over there that you can then put into your maybe your full-time job or vice versa and it sounds as though you've gone down that route as well that you've moved from commercial law into something feels a bit more risky but it's also you're, you're picking lots of bits and pieces out and putting them together in new ways is that a reasonable description yeah and in the sort of investment world portfolio approach to investing is you spread your money across a number of different assets and different types of assets ranging from very safe and boring and probably low return on investment to the more speculative side which is high risk high reward and in the same way i'm trying to do that so i, I still do a bit of work as a lawyer and i guess that's probably at the more predictable or secure end of things but then the more speculative side of things is the sort of commercial deal making stuff that i'm doing and like i said you know there have been periods of time where i've taken my eye off that secure bit and kind of gone all for the glory and and it hasn't served me well and particularly because i've got responsibility i've got family and stuff so you know you need that balance i think the more people you speak to and i always really recommend this when everyone and anyone's talking about trying to change what they do is to just i mean really go for a coffee you know when the world 
returns to normal. But um, in the meantime, Zooms or whatever, and just speak to as many people as you can. Just the different viewpoints you'll get and different bits of input will all be useful. Even the things that you think are really not that useful, they'll confirm the things that you do or don't like. And you'll at least be able to pick, take away at least one or two good things from a conversation that have made you think or made you want to explore something new. And again, I think we look at things in a very linear way and we think a plus b equals c type thing but we fail to factor in that during that journey the things that you learn will also take you in a new direction you know i was trying to think of a good analogy it's a bit like if i earn 10 grand a month in a year's time i have 120 grand let's say but but actually if along the way you you start investing a portion of that at the end of the year you have more than that and i think it's the same in in the way that you approach people, if I speak to 10 people every month, I'll know 120 people in, in a year's time. It's not that. Each of those people that you speak to will give you new ideas and that they might introduce you to more people. And, and it's taken me a long time to start thinking in that way because it's quite unknown and it's quite unquantifiable. But uh, And it's a bit of a leap of faith. But if you keep putting yourself in the right places, then you can't predict what good stuff will happen. But you're increasing your chances of good things happening, I think. You've been doing quite a lot of that. I'll take you back to that example. You had 999 drawings or paintings and then one that was, you know, the Mona Lisa or something. How would you feel if you just produced 999 okay paintings <laughs> and you never got to the Mona Lisa? I mean, is that what you're even aiming for? Are you aiming for one of those high-risk, high-reward things to just explode and be this, like, trumpeting unicorn that does amazingly well or, or not? No, I don't think I am. There is no kind of single destination and it's not like when I get there, it's done. This is constantly evolving. We are at the age now where sadly our parents are sort of going to be experiencing ill health if they haven't already over the next coming years. And, you know, there's going to be lots of challenges and things are going to change dramatically at a pace that we can't predict. So the idea of sort of moving towards one single point is is a fallacy, really. It will be constantly evolving. And I never want to think that I'm just aiming for this one big payoff. It would be, you know, I want several big payoffs. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, you, I want to be sort of constantly producing things that will keep me interested and occupied over the time. And if along the way, one of them turns out to be lucrative or, or whatever, the, whatever metric of success is, then great. But I don't want that to stop me from continuing to pursue things i, th I think in, in the podcast that you mentioned i talk about the the motivation of employees in a in a workplace and yeah. and there are three aspects of of it I, I can't remember it was a ted talk or something that i posted and it was um three areas are autonomy mastery and purpose that actually motivate people in the workplace rather than money and all of those make sense and have an element of improving and and a reason to why you're doing it and I think those are the focuses rather than a sort of a singular focus on an event. So it's the process of production, the process of creation in and of itself that is satisfying, as opposed to necessarily the result. Although, obviously, you don't want it all to kind of collapse in flames. But at the same time, it's not the final focus that's the issue. It's the process of getting there that's more satisfying for you. Yeah, yeah, because you just, like I said, you just don't know what's going to happen. And and if you're in that frame of mind where you're constantly looking out for these things, then you're just, again, you're maximising your chances because, you know, you you might have two or three different avenues of getting to this place. Well, like I said, it's not it's not a place, it's to success, whatever that might be. And that, and that definition of that changes over time as well. Yeah. What is it for you right now? 
I mean, I always say real wealth is time. And so being having time, having more time, well, whatever that may, might be. So finding a way that, you know, means that I've got 20 hours a week where I can just, I can go swimming or I can learn the piano or I can play tennis or rock climbing or whatever it is, you know, that, that would be great. But it means I've got to figure out um, something that kind of, that will kind of pay for that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so the success would be that I'm able to spend time with my family and friends doing the things that I want to do and not having to be preoccupied by, by earning money. Okay. And then everyone has different, different kind of yeah. definition of that. Right. So I, I'm just quite taken by that. Because especially your background, you know, commercial lawyer, you think, oh, you're a pretty hard nosed kind of guy, but all the stuff you talk about is more around values that don't seem to chime with the law. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on lawyers. <laughs> this is only a, a thing that sort of happened over the last five years. I've sort of really evaluated, re-evaluated what I was doing. And, and it was because of a dissatisfaction with the way my life was going and not in a worries me tragic way. It was a bit more like, was well, this what it's all about? Is this what I've got to look forward to for the next 30 years? So yeah. It was the quite a un- moment. Well, maybe, yeah. It was. It's just a bit uninspiring, right? And I was like, yeah. "There's got to be a different way to do this." And 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 variety was a big driver for me. I think so. A lot, a lot of the interesting things I'm looking at now, like I said, are where I get to work with a few different businesses, and that that sort of satisfies my curiosity. I'm, I'm trying to write an essay at the moment about this. It's just essentially sort of embrace the messiness because the the idea that we have perfect lives or can have perfect lives is just such bullshit excuse my french you know i don't know what it is whether it's the media or social media or or whatever that makes people think that they can do this and technology i don't think helps to do lists sort of masquerade as these things that help you but and they make you think that you can get everything done but you can't like there are mm. it's just too many things to do and and so actually it's about embracing the messiness right that you're gonna drop balls and and then also everyone else does and so having some compassion for for them and you that we're all just very human it's the compassion for yourself that's the key thing and i remember you again saying this in the podcast around the fact that you you are going to make mistakes and that you need to be kind to yourself and remember that other people do as well just in case anybody's keen to find out more what the, the podcast you do is called the cannabis conversation right yeah it's not what you might think. I don't want to make any crude and very obvious jokes at this point. Yes. Please do. It's about Cheech and Chong and Bob Marley and yeah. else. Um, so it's basically about the, the new emerging legal cannabis industry mm. and yes. particular elements of it. Is that around medicinal cannabis, but is there other stuff as well? It's, it's legal cannabis. So the broad church of cannabis, which includes so medical cannabis, CBD and um, hemp, so mm-hmm. hemp as an industrial material. But inevitably, I do cover a bit of recreational cannabis in that it is legal in the in certain states in the US and in Canada. So I do cover it from a kind of industry perspective on that level. I get to speak to scientists and researchers and policymakers and investors and entrepreneurs. And so, yeah, it's, mm. it's great. I love it. It gives me yeah. brilliant reason to just be nosy and ask questions. <laughs> yeah. I think that's kind of why I set up this podcast, actually. Now that yeah. I've dug underneath it, I think it's just because I'm quite nosy. It's good. <laughs> that's all there is it's good. It. <laughs> Being inquisitive, I think, let's call it that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a much better way to put it on your CV, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Curious, inquisitive. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, look, I, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to that podcast and I would recommend anybody listening to do the same because it's an exciting growth industry and there's a lot of a lot of new discoveries being made. You talk about the scientists there. There's loads of new stuff being discovered in that area. It's really exciting. What else are you doing just quickly? What's uh, What else is going on in your life? So I've got two kids. So I'm doing the, the dad thing. I've got a consultancy practice called Canverse, which is basically a legal and commercial consultancy for businesses in the cannabis space. And yeah, I got my hands full with those things, actually. <laughs> That's plenty to be going on with, yeah. Fair enough. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time. I know you're busy, so I do appreciate no it. Cheers, All right. Matt. Take care, Thank mate. you. Well, there you have it. As ever, huge thanks to my guest, Anuj, for taking time out from his hectic schedule to talk to me. If success really is time then I've made him slightly less successful, but hopefully his loss is your gain. Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his cover artwork, to Acast for hosting, and of course to you for listening. On which note, I now have enough listeners for Acast to tell me what countries you're all listening from. Unsurprisingly, the UK is top, but if you're one of the surprisingly high number of downloaders in the Falkland Islands, or perhaps you're my single listener in Taiwan, or maybe you're just tuning in from anywhere else in the world, please do get in touch. It'd be great to hear your stories. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, or look me up on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.